Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When I was a boy, one thing I never did willingly was wake up early, except on Christmas Day. And one of my goals in life was to wake up early enough on Christmas Day to actually catch Santa in the act of leaving the gifts. It never worked, but one Christmas I came really close. I got up early before anyone else in the family was awake, and I ventured into the living room where the Christmas tree was illuminated, and I looked and beheld, and the gifts were under the tree. No one else knew it. I was the first to discover this this, uh, glorious pile of toys that had been left behind. Now, I had a brother, and my brother and I, we got along great as long as we weren't in the same place at the same time. So it was really important, we made it very clear that the Christmas tree, the, the real estate underneath the tree, was going to be divided between east and west, left and right, and that one side would be for my things, and the other side would be for his things, and there should be no, there should be like a, a demilitarized zone between them, right? But as I got up and I looked and I beheld, I saw something under the tree that surprised me. I would have thought that if I were comparing maybe my sense of justice to the sense of justice of St. Nicholas, that he would be more just. But it turns out I was wrong. Because as I looked under the tree, I saw that there was an imbalance. On my side of the tree, there were probably three times as many toys as there were on my brother's side of the tree. Now, This made a kind of sense to me because we're told that it's if you're good. You, you get gifts, and Santa knows. And so, like, I, I get it. I understand that my brother probably is a lot less deserving. But when I pictured uh, what it would be like for him to wake up on Christmas morning and to see the, the inequity, the unfairness of the distribution of gifts, I just couldn't take it. And so, uh, on my own, before anyone else had, had awakened, I rebalanced the gifts. I moved things from my side of the tree to his side of the tree until it looked right, until it looked equal. It was painful. It was painful because as I moved things that I really wanted over uh, across the demilitarized zone, I was saying goodbye to them forever. Uh, But it was the right thing to do. And I recognized it as the right thing to do. And, And I actually went back to sleep that morning, went back to bed so that I could wake up again and, and everything would be as it ought to have been. There was a problem, though. And the problem was this. I didn't know the value of the gifts. I was judging things uh, quantitatively. St. Nicholas was judging them qualitatively. And it turns out that in order to buy the gifts that my brother wanted, you could actually buy three times as many things as what I wanted. And so... It showed me, for one thing, you shouldn't follow your your good impulses on Christmas morning. But but the other thing was that it matters to know the value of the gift. It matters to know the value of the gift. I did what I did thinking I was doing the right thing, thinking I was acting altruistically. But the mistake I made was I assumed I knew better than the one who had given the gifts. 
And I think we often find ourselves in a very similar situation. We serve a God who gives gifts generously and lavishly, but whose ways are also mysterious to us. They don't always make sense. And when we look at the way he's put things under the tree, sometimes we want to reorder things, move things around, because we don't know the value of the gifts. We don't understand the purpose that he has in doing what he's done. And the most important gift that he gives, the most important gift that he gives, we don't only not understand it, But to many of us, it is unknown. We couldn't even name it if we tried. You remember the story of Paul at Mars Hill. He goes to Mars Hill and he does something very clever. He recognizes that the Greeks, in their sense of piety, have erected an idol to an unknown god. They know there are so many gods out there, I'm sure we're missing one. We should put one up for for the unknown God, just so we're covering all of our bases. And so Paul takes advantage of that to declare to them the identity of the unknown God, to name the unnamed God to them, to give them the knowledge that they had an instinctual sense that they lacked. I think Isaiah, at the end of this final servant song, does something similar. He pulls back a veil, not on an unknown God, but on an unknown gift. He reveals to us this greatest gift that we find difficult to name. And the name of that gift is imputation. If you've never heard a Christmas Day sermon about the doctrine of imputation, congratulations, you're about to. You can check that off your list. The greatest gift God has given us that we cannot name, typically aren't even aware of, is the gift of imputation, whatever that is. Well, imputation has to do with value. It has to do with accounting, actually. The imputation is the imputation of a righteousness that is given to us, a righteousness that belongs to Jesus Christ. So this is a gift whose value is literally without measure. And to understand this gift and why it is so precious and also why it is so unknown, we need to understand three things that Isaiah can teach us. The first is the necessity of Christ's birth. The second is the justice of Christ's death. And finally, the gift of Christ's righteousness. Let's talk about the necessity of Christ's birth. We celebrate the birth of Christ, the infant Jesus. And as you think about that, and you think of the preciousness of this child who is born, Oftentimes, the necessity of the birth is lost. The reason why it had to be this way, like why it was necessary for Christ to come as he did. In commenting on Isaiah 53, verse 11, John Calvin makes an interesting observation about these words of the Lord. He refers to the righteous one, my servant. And he raises the question, like, why servant? Why throughout these servant songs have we been talking about Jesus as a servant? Why emphasize this servanthood? Here's what he says. By calling him servant, he shows that Christ justified us not only as he is God, but also as he is man. For in our flesh, he procured righteousness for us. He does not say the son, 
but my servant, that we may not only view him as God, but may contemplate his human nature, in which he performed that obedience by which we are acquitted before God. So in calling him the servant, he invites us to contemplate the human nature of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, because it was as a human being that Jesus was obedient unto death. It was as a human being, according to his human nature, that he did the work that was necessary for our salvation. His obedience is how we are acquitted of our sin. Now, when you think about the incarnation, there is a wonder associated with it. But there's a wonder associated with, with little babies in general. In the presence of a little baby, I always feel like a sense of wonder. You look at their, their little hands and their little features, and, and maybe just the, the miniaturization. Like it makes it all seem so impossibly beautiful. Like, how could this be? Like, how could we have once been like that? How is it possible that we come from that? What happened to us? In other words, why did we have to grow up? Right? There's that sense of wonder that you always feel in the presence of a newborn child. But in the presence of the newborn Christ, it has a different character to it. Right? Because you look and you think, you know, how is it possible? But the Son of God, how is it possible that the, the one through whom all things were made, the one whose word sustains all things at this very moment, how can he be smaller than us and so fragile, so contained, and so dependent? It fills us with a sense of wonder that, that such a thing is possible, that such a thing could even be. He's so much greater than us, and yet somehow becomes so much smaller than we are. But that sense of wonder should draw us deeper into a sense of the necessity of the Incarnation. Not just that it's a wonder to behold, but also that it was necessary for this wonder to be. There was a reason why it had to be this way. When we confess our faith, Christians uh, going back to the, the, the ancient church, confess our faith, we confess that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. And then we go on to confess that Jesus has two natures, that within the one person of Jesus Christ, there is a divine nature and a human nature, and that those two things are distinct from one another. The divine doesn't overwhelm the human, Jesus didn't start off human, but then become divine, and, and his humanity was lost. And it's also not that Jesus was a, like God in merely like a human body, like some sort of divine being inhabiting flesh in an alien way. But somehow, he is fully God in the fullest sense and fully human in the fullest sense. And this is necessary. It is necessary not just to believe it because the Bible says it, but it's necessary in the sense that without this truth, our, our salvation would become impossible. In other words, if you ask yourself, why did the Word take on flesh and dwell among us? The answer is because some of the work of salvation could only be done by a human being. 
the Scottish divine William Cunningham explains it this way. He says, the union of the divine and human natures in the one person of Christ with a view to the salvation of sinners was affected just because there were some things necessary for the salvation of men which could be accomplished only by God and others which could only be done or endured by man. Man alone could suffer and die. And God alone could satisfy the divine justice and magnify the divine law. Christ, accordingly, being God and man in one person, did by each nature that which was proper to itself. So as we contemplate the humanity of Jesus and we contemplate the Word made flesh, we remember that it was necessary for our salvation that He become what He became. It was a necessity to this birth that we celebrate. A cosmic, salvific necessity. That's the necessity of Christ's birth. But what about the justice of Christ's death? Isaiah says, He shall bear their iniquities. He shall bear their iniquities. Usually when we talk about the the death of Christ, we don't talk about the justice of it. We talk about the injustice of it. Last time, that was a point that, that we made very clear that Isaiah in the third servant song makes it really clear that the suffering servant doesn't suffer because he deserves it. He's not suffering because he's such a bad guy. He's innocent. He is falsely condemned. And so his trial, his condemnation, as we see in the Gospel accounts, it is unjust. We would recognize this as a man who is innocent being falsely convicted. And yet, to understand what imputation is all about, we have to understand the sense in which the death of Christ is a just death. Here it is, that the penalty he suffers is the just penalty for sin. His condemnation is unjust. He's innocent. But he has taken upon himself our sin. And the just penalty for that sin is death. And he suffers that just penalty in his flesh. Not because he deserves it, but because he's taken our just deserts on himself. That helps explain why earlier in the song, you read these words, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. I don't know about you, but when I hear those words, they they don't sound like good Christmas words. They don't sound loving. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. But they become very loving when you recognize that it is the will of the Lord to crush him rather than you, the one deserving of the crushing. But instead, Christ will bear that burden for you. That's the sense in which we can say his death achieves justice. As Isaiah says, he was numbered among the transgressors. He was numbered among the transgressors. He bore the sins of many. Our iniquities, as Isaiah says earlier, were laid upon him. That death was a necessary death so that the needs of justice, so to speak, could be appeased. I recognize that the idea of Jesus' death being an atoning sacrifice seems both primitive and unnecessary in this day and age. The idea that God had a problem And the only way he could think to solve it was for the Son of God to take on flesh and die this cruel, horrible death 
that people could see as a blood sacrifice to atone for sin, it all seems so ancient. If God is all-powerful and God wanted to forgive sin, uh, couldn't he just wave his magic wand and make it go away? I mean, he created all reality. Doesn't he have the power to just do whatever he wants? Why go through all of this? Which is an easy question to ask when you don't really think that at the fall anything bad happened. Because we tend to think that the consequences of the fall are minor. The air is human. I mean, come on. Everybody does it. We all sin. It's not that big a deal. Just the way we are. As a result, the extreme ends necessary to make up for it, they don't compute for us. If we have a low view of our sin, then obviously we don't need that much effort invested in our salvation. But when we think about it this way, we think about it exactly wrong. Like We need to reverse engineer this and instead look at the solution and let the solution tell us how big the problem was. If it was necessary for God to take on flesh and dwell among us, if it was necessary for him to obey as a human being, to become a second Adam, to fulfill what the first Adam did not. If that was necessary, and it was necessary for him to die, then maybe we have failed to appreciate the true offense of our sin. The real burden created by it. The real cosmic consequences. And the reality of what it means to say that God is just. And that part of being just is not waving your wand and saying, it doesn't matter. But actually, something has to be done to address the offense. The death of Christ tells us justice does matter. It's real. A real aspect of the character of God. And that this extreme was necessary in order to satisfy the demands of justice. It teaches us how to regard our own sin. The evil we do is real. The damage we do is real. But so is the gift. So is the gift that we have been given. And that gift is the gift of Christ's righteousness. Isaiah says it this way. He says that the point of it all, the point of what my servant is doing, is so that many will be accounted righteous. That many will be accounted righteous. And and accounting enters in here. Because when you say something is going to be accounted righteous, you're implying that it isn't righteous in and of itself. We're speaking a little bit differently about righteousness than we typically do. The gift that Jesus gives us is not the gift of a good example. Jesus did not come into the world to set a really great example so that those of us wondering how to be good people will have a role model to follow. This is not what Jesus does. It is probably what most of us want from him. If you think about your wants and the way that you want to live your life, when I think about the way that I want to live my life, I want to get everything that I want, and I want to do it in a way that I hurt as few people as possible, do as little damage as possible, but get as much of what I want as possible. Not in a mean way or an exploitative way. Uh, I'd like it all to just happen in, in a happy and joyous way, but it does really need to happen. To be fulfilled, to be successful, 
not to hurt too many people, not to make too many enemies, not to have too many sleepless nights, but basically to get what we want. And so a God who could come into the world and live the life that shows us how would be wonderful. You know, sometimes you see these, these infomercial pitches. Occasionally, uh, people will come to town and put on seminars, how to get rich. And you can come to my seminar and, and you can get rich. I'll show you how to uh, invest in real estate or something like that. And you can be rich like I am. And, and now I go around the country and you pay me money to tell you how to be rich. And I need you to pay me money because I'm rich, apparently. Um, hmm. Hmm. Jesus doesn't work that way. Calvin says men are not only taught righteousness in the school of Christ, but are actually justified. Men are not just taught righteousness in the school of Christ, but are actually justified. When you show up at Jesus' conference, he doesn't tell you how to get rich, he makes you rich. He doesn't tell you how to get right with God, he doesn't tell you how to live a good life, he makes you righteous. He justifies. That is what Christ does. Now, there's a sense in which what I'm really saying is Jesus doesn't give you what you want. He gives you what you need. And those are horrible words to hear on Christmas morning. Like no kid wants their parent to give them what they need rather than what they want. Like you want games. You want iTunes gift certificates. You want all these things. And you don't want parents who say, but what you need is socks. That's what's practical, right? That's, that's, that's not it at all. And that's not at all what I mean. I'm not saying that you have all these wonderful desires in your heart and Jesus says, no, you need socks. What I'm saying is you have a deep longing, a deep longing in your heart, and the things that you want won't satisfy. The things that you want won't do what you think they will do, and Jesus instead does it. He doesn't give you the tools so that you can make it happen. He does it. He doesn't teach righteousness in his school. He makes righteousness in his school. And that's what imputation is about. It means not that you are given the tools to earn righteousness, but rather his obedience, his righteousness is accounted to you. Not because you deserve it. Not because you were especially smart or receptive. He does that work on your behalf. He makes you good in the eyes of God. He actually justifies you so that if you have the gift of imputation, you don't need anything else in order to be saved. That's why Paul says in Romans 5 these words, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That is the gift that Jesus Christ gives, the gift of righteousness. And that gift of imputed righteousness is more valuable than wealth. It is more valuable than your health. It's more valuable than your family. It's more valuable than your marriage. It's more valuable than your contentment and your happiness. I'm not saying that those things aren't important. Those things are treasures, but this is better than those things. We're like people at the side of the manger when the wise men show up who see the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh and the baby and think, wow, the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, that's impressive. 
It's like, no, it's not. It's really not in comparison to Christ. That's the treasure. Christ's righteousness imputed to you despite the fact that you are one of the transgressors that he makes intercession for. The important thing is knowing the value of the gift. Most of us, we wake up, we see what's under the tree, we make our own judgments about what's right and what's wrong, the way it ought to be, and we start moving stuff around accordingly whether we understand what's going on or not. We have an idea of what is just, what's equitable, what's balanced, and that's what we work for, regardless of what God has done. But one of the things I hope we've seen in looking at the servant songs of Isaiah is the sense in which each song is also an invitation. Each song not only reveals Christ to us, but also reveals something about what it means to follow him. The first song was an invitation to enter into God's delight in Christ, to enter into the joy that the Father feels when he regards the Son. The second song invited us to share in Christ's sense of purpose, to be focused as he was focused on doing the work of his Father. And then last time, the third song invited us into Christ's wisdom to understand as he understood. This last song, is an invitation into Christ's righteousness, an invitation into the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And what is Jesus giving us for Christmas? He's giving us his righteousness. He clothes us in his obedience to cover our disobedience. He wraps us in his sanctity to make a satisfaction for our sins. He comes down to us in this world in this room, in in these very hearts, to bring us up to Him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.